following lecture was produced by the Gnostic Academy of Chicago, a nonprofit organization, and is one of many available for podcast, download, and transcription. You can visit chicagonosis.org to find courses, articles, scriptures, commentaries, and other valuable resources that address a wide variety of spiritual subjects, interests, and needs. Through the generous support of listeners like you, the Gnostic Academy of Chicago has produced online courses, lectures, and articles freely available worldwide. If you have benefited from this knowledge, help humanity through making a tax-deductible donation at chicagonosis.org. If you are interested in attending the Gnostic Academy of Chicago in person, you may view our online class schedule and freely register at meetup.com slash chicagonosis. The Chicagoland Gnostic Academy provides humanity with the necessary means for transforming suffering and acquiring personal knowledge of the divine. With this purpose in mind, we now begin the lecture. May all beings be happy. Gnosticism, in its pristine form, has been studied in accordance with four pillars, as we've been discussing throughout this course. As a tradition, it is founded upon the teachings and studies of science, mysticism, art, and philosophy. And with this lecture, we're going to conclude by explaining the fundamentals of Gnostic philosophy. It's important to look at the state of our humanity, the state of our planet, well, its chaos, its afflictions, and its great turmoil, which many types of politics, politicians, systems, codes of conduct are propitiated, are taught, as a means of trying to contain and control the tremendous afflictions that humanity is enduring, its death throes. And so we have to understand precisely what is it that perpetuates suffering, conflict, disorder. And for this we have no other solution than to return to the ancient sciences, the ancient modes of spirituality, of conduct, of self-reflection, because as Immanuel Kant, the great philosopher from Konigsberg, stated, the exterior is merely a reflection of the interior. So the conflicts that we see in humanity are precisely that which we carry inside, in our mind, in our heart, and which we act out in our body to the detriment or to the benefit of others. It's precisely the study of self which is the core of the Gnostics, their endeavor their philosophy. And if we look at the original word philos sophia in Greek, we understand that it, it means love of wisdom. It does not mean academic study, intellectualism, scholasticism, something to debate for or against, a means of belittling another person in terms of 
pontificating academic vocabulary, a system of the intellect used to subjugate others, a way of thinking. It does not mean that. And as we explain in etymological terms, science is genuine knowledge, scientia. Mysticism is when we close our eyes to illusion, mayin in Greek, which is where we get the word mystikos, initiate. Someone initiated into a superior way of being. And art, from artus, and many other words, signifying to join or to joint, an expression of consciousness, which is the definition of art. And so philosophia is really the same meaning as religion. In the Latin, radigare, to reunite with the divine. We do that precisely by loving divinity. And as Jesus stated, love thy neighbor as thyself. First, love thy God above all things. Have philos for your own inner wisdom, Sophia. But sadly, people think philosophy is a means of caging the intellect, which is what it does. Of knowing the truth. Of explaining the many diverse phenomena which we encounter whether it be in politics, natural law, etc. But real philosophy is when we as a soul experience the truth and that love that is born spontaneously from the heart of recognizing that divinity for ourselves, that humility, that faith. This is uh, the definition of philosophia. It is not a system to cage the mind, something to believe in something to battle in a debate against an opponent in terms of intellectual concepts, intellectual arsenal, you could say. And so our problems with our humanity will be resolved easily if each individual takes it upon him or herself to rectify his or her own behavior, his mind, his heart, his behavior, his habits. As Buddha said, we become what we think. Mind precedes phenomena. If our mind is full of degeneration, of desire, of passion and lust, of fear and anger, we are really worshipping that which is impure. It prevents us from accessing love of wisdom, love of truth, the experience of the truth. And so genuine spirituality is real philosophy. It's not separate. And as we've been emphasizing in this course, The four pillars of Gnosticism are integral. They are not separate. We have to look at philosophy as something psychological and scientific, as something methodical, experiential, and experimental. We have to look at philosophy and psychology as science, as a mysticism, as a way of closing our eyes to to ignorance and illusion in order to perceive with our own spiritual sight the truths that are contained within religion. And all that is, of course, expressed and demonstrated in art. When many great mysticos or initiates of past times convey to humanity the very keys of how to change for the better, how to transform the mind. And as you see in this opening image, we have uh, the Academy. I believe it's with um, the great philosophers Aristotle and Plato in the very center. And in the image, we have many of the great thinkers and luminaries of humanity, 
which existed in Greece. At school, we uh, emphasize these core issues. That real knowledge is spiritual, conscious. Real philosophy is conscious. What we have verified. What we know for ourselves. And that when we possess this knowledge from experience, we are able to look at any work of art, as we were talking about previously, and interpret the symbolism, the instructions, the keys that will teach us how to transform our suffering into peace and harmony. So genuine philosophy is the key. Gnostic philosophy is the essence of how we are going to change who we are and how we can make the changes we want for humanity. In this next graphic, we have the oracle of the Temple of Delphi, who famously stated, Homo nosite ipsum. Man know thyself, and we can also say, you, and you will know the universe and the gods. So this philosophy, this knowing, this love of truth, comes when we know ourselves. And we have to ask the question, do we know who we are, fundamentally? When we observe our psyche, when we learn to self-observe, as Samael and Vior stated in his Revolutionary Psychology, we begin to see with a new sense that thoughts, feelings, impulses, will, desires, these things are separate from the observer. They are a conglomeration of different factors which are, in, are distinct and yet work together through mechanical association, through our physical habits. And we have to see that these elements and their chaos constitute our suffering, the causes of our pain. We call these different elements, defects, memories, thoughts, desires as egos, which we created. And as much as we can discuss and point out the faults of American politics and all the chaos that humanity has endured for millennia. We have to see that while that type of analysis bears merit, we have to see how do we contribute to that chaos, that conflict. For as Kant said, we are, we are the exterior. The exterior world is inside. So it's better not to point our finger, but to we look at ourselves. As the Temple of Delphi, the oracle stated, Know thyself and you will know the universe and the gods. And so by knowing our defects, our faults and errors, and by transforming them through the esoteric science of mysticism, of meditation, we in turn gain conscious knowledge of ourselves, of who we are and where we need to go. Another word that relates to philosophy is the Sanskrit word darshan. In Hinduism, it means auspicious sight. It means to see directly from the root word uh, dris. And we included this image of Jesus before Mary Magdalene, after his resurrection, to demonstrate the relationship between Philos and Sophia, and also the nature of auspicious sight. And what does it mean to be auspicious? To be awed, to be filled with, with even terror before that which is the divine. Not out of a sense of egotism, of insecurity, but to be overwhelmed by the immense power of the divine and that beauty that is so penetrative that it transforms everything. And so Mary Magdalene was seeing 
Before her, the physical Jesus raised from the dead, the great master Abaramento, the head of the Gnostic Church. And she wanted to approach him, she representing Sophia, the fallen Sophia of the Pistis, uh, the Coptic text, Pistis Sophia, who, as a repentant prostitute, seeks to unite with the truth, but recognizes the impurity of her psyche, which is us. And so Jesus, of course, uh, steps back and says, you cannot touch me yet, for my hour has not yet come. You're not allowed to uh, approach me with your degeneration, with your evil psychology. You have to transform it. And of course, Mary Magdalene is a soul that has prostituted itself, has created all these discursive elements we call ego, fear, anger, lust. And yet, she recognizes her perversity, how she herself has been indoctrinated with systems and concepts and philosophies that have taught her how to ignore her divine nature. But she needs to approach him, and she, out of divine love, approaches the Christ, which is a representation of our inner divinity. She, in this manner, has a love of truth because she's experienced it. And she recognizes her own perversity, and it repents. And of course, Mary Magdalene became the great Saint Mary Magdalene, as canonized by the official church, and who is the most beloved disciple of Jesus amongst the Gnostics. And so when we genuinely see the truth for ourselves, we are filled with awe and a recognition of our own faults and what we must do to change them. And so speaking on this concept of genuine philosophy, this love of wisdom, We've included an image uh, sketched by an initiate. It might have been Gustav Dore. I'm not entirely certain. But it has some Latin inscriptions which emphasize the points we've made previously about Mary Magdalene. Uh, Lux finis in mundum et dexiverunt homines magis tenebres quam lucim, uh, quam lucim, excuse me. And this inscription basically states from the Latin Vulgate that the light shineth in the darkness, but the darkness comprehends it not. And uh, the light has shineth in the world, but men have rejected the light because their ways were evil. This is from, uh, possibly from the book of John. But we've included this image uh, explaining the allegory of the cave of Plato and to emphasize what is the nature of genuine philosophy? What does it mean to have love of wisdom? And what is the process that leads us to that recognition for ourselves. So in the famous allegory of the cave by Plato, who is a Gnostic master, uh, by the way, he explains a very famous process of obtaining knowledge and truth for oneself, which is very well documented and studied in universities. But I'm going to be explaining the esoteric meaning of it, not the academic uh, presentation. So in this myth... Like Mary Magdalene, she is in darkness. We see a group of men who are in prison on the far right corner, enchained. And in the Socrates narration of, in the text of the Republic, their necks and their hands and arms are chained to the back of this wall, which we see present. They do not see anything. They are in darkness. They are in ignorance. And ignorance does not mean to lack a university degree or a some form of education. 
but to not know the causes of suffering in ourselves. And in that definition, all of us are ignorant. We ignore how we perpetuate our own pain. And so these men who are in darkness live in the shadows their entire life. But there are some who happen to see shadows projected on the wall because there's a fire, or the wall before them, there's a fire behind this wall in which they are enchained by their necks and their hands, in which people pass to and fro with objects, pottery, images, etc., on their heads or on their hands, that through the light of the fire in this cave project onto the wall before these men, these prisoners. And sometimes they see darkness, sometimes they may see images or shadows on the wall. Illusions. And this is, of course, a representation of all the different theories, beliefs, ideas, idols that people worship, images people have in their minds, beliefs, systems, dogmas that they project on the screen of their existence, which is a very shallow or narrow cave in which they are imprisoned. And that cave is a symbol of the mind, the intellect, which keeps us enchained through its beliefs, ideations, etc. And so one either sees nothing, one is in either complete state of ignorance and sleep, of the consciousness, or one sees images. These are states of consciousness, we can say. We say the first state of consciousness is the darkness of the cave. It is complete annihilation or awareness of self. And this constitutes in itself a state of complete barbarity. All the states of war, of persecution, torture, violence, hatred, etc. is the profound state of sleep. People who live in darkness psychologically. But there are those who have images in their minds, idols in their minds, statues in their, or concepts and beliefs that they worship in their intellects. It could be Christianity, Judaism, Islam, metaphysics, occultism, many ideas in the intellect that have no verification within the psyche. These are dreams. These are illusions that people project or see on the projection of their mind, from their mind, which is caused by all the different statues, images in the background, all the different beliefs that people have formulated and which people study and adhere to and worship as if it were God, as if it were the divine. Ignoring that these are just projections, concepts, toys of the intellect. They are not conscious, experiential wisdom or knowledge. And fortunately, for the case of perhaps one or two prisoners, they may be released from their prison, their chains. They're taken by a master, a guru, a mahatma, an angelic being who who is out of sacrifice, going into those hell regions, those Dark, the darkness of that cave to release the prisoners. Oh. Our prisoner is released and of course is forced to look straight at the campfire or the fire in this cave for the first time. Of course it's blinding. It's dazzling. For when one awakens consciousness they perceive it in a completely new way. And that fire is the light of intelligence, the light of conscious perception of the truth. It is awakened knowledge. It means to perceive the fire for the first time and to make the analysis and, and understand that all those images that were seen on the shadows of the wall are illusions and that they have their source from this fire. Likewise, when we observe our mind and see that we are not our thoughts, we are not our moods, our feelings, our sentiments, 
We're not our impulses. We are something else. We are something more intelligent, dynamic. Conscious knowledge, conscious perception is born in us. We learn to revise our way of thinking. To understand that what we believed about ourselves, what we think about ourselves, was illusion, was a mistake. And yet, born from that experience is, is developed real courage to change. But this is not the end of the myth. For the guru, the master, takes this proselyte, this disciple, who's seen the fire for the first time, and is pulled, dragged out of the cave, out of the long tunnel, which we see in the back far, uh, or the top left of this image, in which he is brought before genuine daylight. Actually, in the Republic, it states that he sees, for the first time, the stars. And of course, even the stars are blinding, since his entire existence has been in the shadows, in, in psychological sleep. But when the sun rises for the first time, this prisoner is in awe. And of course, the sun is a representation of the Platonic Logos, the Christ, in Greek terms, Gnostic terms, which is an intelligence power which permeates all of nature. So when we see the sun for the first time, it is a symbol of perceiving the divine for ourselves, whether it be in meditation or when our physical body goes to sleep, we as a soul exit out of our cave, this body that we have in which we're trapped. And we go out into the internal dimensions up that magical tree of life, which we discussed in the lectures on Kabbalah. And uh, we experience divinity and talk face to face for ourselves with the truth. And of course, being in front of the presence of the sun is powerful. One feels oneself humbled and annihilated before the light. Like Moses on Mount Sinai saying to the Lord, show me your true form. And the Lord says, if I show you my true form, you will die. Meaning, not just physically to die, but psychologically in order for you to see me, he says, you must be entirely pure. You must be purified. And so this has been a discussion in academia, or a symbol for academia, of how the individual person acquires some type of intellectual knowledge or study and becomes sophisticated. But that's not the real meaning, or knowing the truth in terms of a concept. This pertains to how we as a soul escape the conditions of the psyche, and experience Christ, the light, fully in ourselves. And of course, that objective consciousness is, or supraconsciousness is beyond the limits of our physical senses. And we learn to activate that through sciences of meditation and dream yoga, which we'll be giving courses in the future. So that is real philosophy, experience, love of truth, love of wisdom, and in order to elaborate on these points, what the, we, we're going to talk about how the ancients studied and knew this teaching. People look at the ancient schools of mysteries as somehow being uh, unnecessary, uh, simplistic a concept that the ancient schools of uh, mysteries in Greece, Egypt, Rome, Carthage, etc., were uh, idolaters or that they were superstitious. As we explained in the lecture on uh, Gnostic mysticism, we talked about how the ancient mystery schools knew this knowledge directly from conscious experience. 
they verified what they had seen for themselves. And we have to take the same type of scrutiny in relation to what we perceive. The same type of analysis. We don't doubt, we don't justify what we perceive. We discriminate, we look for facts. And that is how the individual in the cave is looking at the fire and discriminating that the images that were projected on the wall are just pottery, concepts, intellect, ideas. They don't really constitute any substantial reality in the most objective sense. And so these ancient schools were very pure in the past, but of course they lost their essence as they were exposed to more uh, persecution and were shut down. But these ancient schools were integrated in science, art, philosophy, and mysticism. They had a love of wisdom that pertained to scientific knowledge, the study of botany, many types of uh, studies such as physics, chemistry, etc. And they expressed their knowledge in a mystical way through art. But let us talk about how philosophy in its genuine, most intrinsic sense used to be integrated with these different pillars. For as Samuel Vior, the founder of the modern Gnostic tradition, states in his book, Fundamentals of Gnostic Education. Thus, since ancient times and the different scenarios of the theaters of life, psychology has always played its role by being intelligently disguised with the costumes of philosophy. Since the terrifying night of all times, on the banks of the Ganges and the sacred India of the Vedas, there have existed many forms of yoga, which in their depth are pure, higher, experimental psychology. The seven types of yoga have always been described as methods, procedures, or philosophical systems. In the Arab world, the sacred, partly metaphysical, and partly religious teachings of the Sufis have indeed a purely psychological character. In old Europe, which is rotten to its very bone marrow because of so many wars, racial, religious, and political prejudices, etc., Right up to the end of the 19th century, psychology was disguised with the costumes of philosophy in order to pass unnoticed. We only have to look at the writings of Dostoevsky, for that example, who embedded his characters, his literary forms, with psychological knowledge. You can even look back to the book Crime and Punishment with uh, the Russian student Raskolnikov, who was, in Russian, a split being. Raskol means split, fractured, divided. And he's a figure, who, a student who decides to commit a murder of an old pawnbroker, a woman, because he wants to assert his superiority as a superman, to use Nietzsche's term. But of course, he refers to any of us who have killed psychologically, killed our own potential to know the truth. And of course, the rest of that novel is about how this student comes to remorse and repentance. And there are many symbols in that, in that text. But Raskolnikov represents us. We're split between the sense of right and wrong, meaning wanting to enter into spirituality, but we've committed many errors, whether we've murdered in past existences or whatnot. And so Dostoevsky and many other writers were philosophers and psychologists, and this is very well accepted even in academia. But we find that these traditions are very rich. Philosophy and psychology were integrated So notwithstanding all the divisions and subdivisions of philosophy, such as logic, the theory of knowledge, ethics, aesthetics, etc., nonetheless, psychology is undoubtedly in itself evident self-reflection, mystical cognition of the being, of the divine, a fundamental cognition of an awakened consciousness. 
as represented by the allegory of the cave. The error of many philosophical schools consists in having considered psychology as something inferior to philosophy, as something related only to the lowest and even trivial aspects of the human nature. So we're going to talk about some of these different schools of thought and philosophy in order to extract the best and to disregard what's useless. So we talked about the Gnostic teaching of knowing oneself, of transcending the intellect. Of course, René Descartes, or Descartes, explained in his uh, treatises the very, very famous concept, I think, therefore I am, which is incorrect. But many Western thinkers, who, people who identified with the demonic qualities of the intellect, fascinated with their shadows on the wall, approached Descartes like a god as an idol. The concept that I think, therefore I am, is completely false. As Samayon of Yonor states in Igneous Rose. Because the true man is the innermost, our inner divinity, our spirit. And the innermost does not think because he knows. And of course, in relation to the allegory of the cave, the innermost is represented by the sun, the solar logos. And the spirit is uh, really... uh, an expression of that light, of that truth. God does not think. He is omniscient, meaning he sees and perceives beyond thought, thinking, will, sensation. He is knowledge of a superconscious state. So the mind thinks, not the innermost. And we could say that in its current state of evolution, the human mind is the animal that we carry within. The innermost does not need to think because he is omniscient. So we included this image of Jesus riding along the donkey into the uh, city of Jerusalem. That donkey is a representation of the mind. Or in Kabbalah we say Netzach, the intellect. So Christ, Jesus representing the inner Platonic Logos in us, is that light or force or energy that must learn to control this donkey of a mind that we have to train it. But sadly, in most people, the donkey is riding us, as we can see with our present-day humanity. But, uh, and again, this is emphasized by Rumi, the great Sufi poet, who said that Jesus needs to ride the donkey into the city, but most people have their donkey riding their Jesus. So this is from a Sufi scripture or poem he wrote. And so... This concept that that I think therefore I am is wrong. To think is not to be present, to be conscious. Thinking is a form of a very inferior way of being, of existing. And we can only know this if we've escaped from that cave. If we escaped the intellect even just for a few moments to see that we are not the mind. The mind is a machine. It is a tool. It can process information. It is useful for storing information, of memorizing things forming concepts, but that is all it does. It cannot know God. It cannot know the truth. And even Jesus said, or rather Christ through Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. So, Jesus, the truth, or better said, the cosmic Christ said through Jesus, I am. This I am 
is the being. It is presence, cognizance, free of default, of affliction, of conditioning. And only the, only the being can say I am, because he is the presence of life within every galaxy, atom, cosmos. He is present within every being, and yet not all beings know him. So God does not think. This I am, the Christ, does not conceptualize. He knows, therefore he does not have to think. Now the intellect is useful, but it is not, really, it should not be our sole preoccupation or what we identify ourselves with. Because Jesus didn't disregard the donkey altogether, but he controlled it. He used it in order to be of service to humanity, represented by his entrance into the city of Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. And so, philosophy is very much dedicated to this concept of, the, of fortifying the intellect, at least in modern times. But the ancient Gospels of Thomas, the Gnostic Gospel of Thomas, teaches us that real philosophy is psychological and spiritual. It is not based upon the limitations of the mind. It goes beyond it. For as this Gospel states, with Jesus narrating uh, mystical teachings to his disciples. And he said, Whosoever discovers what these sayings mean will not taste death. doesn't necessarily mean physical death, but spiritual. In which the soul is, uh, when released from its body, is sent into the inferior dimensions in order to be cleansed of its defects. False, because we could say that hell, the inferior dimensions, is in Kabbalah, is a recycling plant. Once the defects are eliminated, if that soul does not willingly choose to de- destroy those errors and ascend up that tree of life, instead that soul enters and devolves into those inferior regions, known as hell, Avicii, Averno, etc., and different cosmogonies. But so whoever discovers these meanings will escape that process of re- of cleansing of the psyche within those dimensions those realms. And Jeshua said, Seek and do not stop seeking until you find. When you find, you will be troubled. When you are troubled, you will marvel and rule over all. So this is real philosophy, to seek and not stop seeking, to have that inspiration and love to want to know the truth and to not rest until we find it. And then when we find it, like the allegory of the cave states, we go back into the cave to teach those who are less fortunate, who have not experienced what would be experienced in order to help raise their level of being, to instruct them, to teach them, to help them in accordance with our, our talents, our dispensations, our skills. So do not stop sinking until you find. And then when you do find, you will be troubled. Because when we recognize that we are the cause of our own suffering, everything changes. We don't blame others so easily. We don't accuse others so easily. We recognize that the faults we see in our neighbor are what we possess an abundance and therefore we don't need to judge as Christ taught and then when you are troubled you will marvel and rule over all meaning by entering that spiritual path out of that cave that straight and narrow way that leadeth unto life to freedom of the soul in God um, which few find by following that path and accomplishing the completion of this work this path of initiation as Samael and Vior states in the perfect matrimony, we will marvel and rule over all. 
we will conquer ourselves. So Yeshua said, Know what is in front of your face, and what is hidden from you will be disclosed. There is nothing hidden that will not be revealed. So what is hidden from us is precisely those truths contained in religion that seem obscure and abstract, which we seek to experiment and to verify, as represented by Doubting Thomas, who was told by the apostles that Jesus had arisen from the dead, and yet he would not believe them. He said, I will only believe that this is true when I have seen it for myself. I will not accept your testimony as fact. And so the, the apostles brought Thomas to Jesus. And even then, in front of Jesus, he did not accept that he was the risen Christ yet. Jesus told him to approach and place his finger into the side of his wound, where he was pierced by the lance of Longinus. And there... Thomas, with his finger in the wound, as we see in this image, stepped back and realized that, yes, you are Jesus. You are Christ. And people look at this historically as uh, an account of how Thomas, as an apostle, was a skeptical and that he wasn't as good as a believer as the others. That's not the point. It's a symbol of as we, as a consciousness, must learn to discriminate fact from fiction, truth from falsehood. And when anyone tells us anything, we say, well, I, I, it sounds plausible, but I really don't know. But I'm not going to reject what you say. I'm not going to affirm what you say. Instead, I'm going to test it. And then in meditation, we as a soul go into our internal planes and we speak face-to-face with Christ. And we know that being, and we know that, or we can speak to the Master Jesus outside of us, but also our own inner Christ and recognize that we have that divine uh, presence within us. And this reminds me of an experience I had in the astral plane many years ago in which I invoked Jesus where in the presence of my house, outside of my property, in the astral plane, I looked to the sky and invoked Jesus in the name of Christ, by the power of Christ, for the majesty of Christ, Abramento. He came and he was a being of such luminosity that I was terrified. I didn't know how to approach him. And I was afraid that I might be misled. But he then showed, he then showed me uh, something symbolic in that dream state, which I won't narrate in full. But he gave me a teaching that made me realize that, yes, this is Abramento teaching me. He came to my property to, from the heavens to instruct me. So it was like me being Thomas, putting my finger in his wound. Not literally, but questioning him and, and asking him with my heart you know, to instruct me, to guide me with certain problems I was having at that time. And he gave me a teaching that is really uh, beautiful, very hard to grasp, since he's a very high master, very elevated. So I was like Thomas, testing and inquiring, and then, of course, Jesus didn't get upset. He just accepted, he, he accepted my, of course, my poverty, my state of being, being inferior, and he was there to teach me. Not because I'm special, but because, as Jesus said, I have not come to teach the the righteous, but the sinners. So he's a, you know, as he said, but also he said, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. He who is greatest in heaven will be your servant. So I inquire, I uh, suggest that if you learn dream yoga, you can invoke him and acquire that knowledge, that truth for yourself directly. So there are errors and epochs in nature, in thought, in history, in politics, and philosophy. Some island viewers stated in Igneous Rose that the age of reason was initiated by Aristotle 
It reaches culmination in Immanuel Kant and ends now with the birth of the new era of Aquarius. So in astrology, we were previously in the era of Pisces until the 1960s, approximately. And Pisces as an astrological influence relates to how certain initiatic schools conserved a teaching or knowledge without disclosing it to the public. Pisces is an era of, a, of a conservatism, of hiding, of teaching and instructing the truth, the higher levels of, of religion and mysticism, from mouth to ear. But the Aquarian era is very different. It's revolutionary. Aquarius is the age in which we are presently in, through which knowledge, the water carrier, is given, dis, uh, as symbolized by the water carrier, knowledge is given openly. So the woman carrying this water pails is bringing the truth and instruction openly to the public for the first time, especially through the writings of Samael and Vior, who is the avatar of Aquarius, who came to teach the knowledge of how to work with those waters, which we carry within our body as a, the sexual energy, the sexual fluid. Through its transformation, we can learn to become true spiritual revolutionaries, not against other people, but against ourselves, by conquering ourselves. So Aristotle initiated the era of reason, and Immanuel Kant concluded it. So it's interesting if you read the writings of Samael on Vior, where he states and emphasizes the teachings of Kant often. Not that Kant was an initiate, but Kant made some understandings and insights that were very relevant for the Western tradition. What's important to recognize is that in Kant's writings, he stated that the intellect cannot know the truth. And of course, many philosophers hated him for that in the West. But since Aristotle and until Immanuel Kant, people in the Western tradition have been fascinated with intellect, with reason. And yet, Immanuel Kant, his major contribution to philosophy is the fact that the mind cannot know anything of the truth. He states this in his Critique of Pure Reason, his Critique of Practical Reason, and his Prolegomena to Any Future Metaphysics, which is a much smaller text, and also much more approachable. And so, the beauty of Kant's teaching, which many have rejected, is the understanding that the intellect in itself is just a tool, as we were stating previously. He provided four postulates known as antimonies of reason. An antimony is merely uh, a postulation or statement that can go either way. Thesis or antithesis. There's a pro and a con. An antimony is basically a contradiction or a paradox. And without going into some of the academic um, explanations of this, in synthesis, he was pointing out how the mind cannot know the truth, and that we can prove it through four antimonies. In the first, we have the mathematical antinomies in relation to space and time, atomism, and the dynamic or qualitative antinomies relating to spontaneity or causal determinism, free will or, or karma, or maybe you could say free will or mechanicity and laws of nature. Likewise, whether or not there is a necessary being or not. And so with the philosophical discussions on space and time, which is very popular in the times of Aristotle and Plato, 
there's a thesis that the world has a beginning in time. Likewise, it is also limited regarding space. But then there's an antithetical way of thinking in relation to Aristotle's belief that the earth was infinite and eternal. He stated this in his physics. He said that the world has no beginning, no limits in space. It's infinite in regarding both time and space. Now, the second antinomy, there is the discussion of whether or not everything is made up of simple parts or whether or not everything is complex in terms of atomism, whether or not everything is formulated by atoms or whether compound substances in large degree. In relation to spontaneity and causal determinism, he emphasized that there is either complete uh, mechanicity in nature and there is no possibility for free will, known as determinism, or there is the ability to have free will in the midst of this. And so there are different arguments for or against, which many philosophers in the West have battled in their treatises for centuries. Likewise, whether or not there is a necessary being or not, whether there is a God or no. And these are discussions that people are hypnotized by to this day, which Kant laid it out very clear. No, look, you can either be in one camp or the other. So what's the point? You can either this argument or you can argue against it. And you can, you can fulfill and propound your own evidence for either case and be just as right. And yet both are wrong or right. It's the paradox. So he's emphasizing that the conviction of these philosophers is based upon a form of thinking that is devoid of actually knowing. And that one can just argue for something because one has a concept in their mind and they have a lot of data supposedly to support it. Simply look at the last presidential uh, debates in which we see both two sides arguing against each other and many people having their own beliefs and concepts for one candidate or the other. Regardless of whether or not it's true or not, this shows a tendency in the mind to want to use data to suppose, propose a point and to support a point. And yet, where's the objectivity in all that? And that's what Kant was teaching, that we are dealing with phenomena. We're not dealing with noumena. Phenomena are appearances. Noumena are things in themselves, conscious principles, the truth, from the, relating to the Greek neuma, spirit. So all these philosophies are based upon this quality of the intellect and the heart of wanting to assert an idea and gain dominance upon others. Of course, this is negative. We could also call it witchcraft, black magic. To assert one's self on another person, to control them with our intellect, is sorcery, black magic. And we see, that, we see this uh, dynamic ubiquitously in every place. I personally have sat in, sat in on uh, philosophy debates for schools in which you see these kids taking a position one or for one position or, not, or another and trying to come up with as many reasons for why they're right. And now, while in Buddhism, certain schools have propounded the necessity of being able to argue for something or against it, you see, in, especially in the West, that this is very degenerated. You see, st- I've personally seen people get very angry and inflict a lot of harm with their words in the middle of these so-called debates. So as some island viewers stated in the Major Mysteries, we have to avoid debate, arguments, precisely because in the act of arguing, we are asserting our own will upon another person. We can state our point, but if they accept it or reject our ideas, that's their business. We have to learn how to 
speak without asserting ourselves over another person, without anger, without coercion, we could say. As Muhammad in the, in the, in the doctrine of Islam in the Quran states, there is no coercion in religion. Because religion is about bringing people together. But debates and arguments divide people. And so philosophy has degenerated into this farce, this show of trying to dominate the other person with our concepts. And this has infected esoteric schools in abundance. This is a very big problem in spiritual movements. It's enough to look at the Catholic Church or even Western, the Western esoteric tradition. Certain individuals and speakers, I won't name them by name, but we can think of many different examples of people who are fighting in spiritual groups to assert their so-called superiority upon others, saying, I am a master and therefore... If you disagree with me, you're, you're going to hell. And that type of nonsense. So discussions and polemics have ruined many spiritual schools, according to Samuel and Vior. When two individuals argue, what they have is pride and arrogance in their mind. Both want to demonstrate their boasted superiority to one another. Both have Satan and throat in their mind. We must always respectfully express our concept and allow our listener the freedom to accept or reject our concept. Everybody is free to think as they please. And we cannot exercise power over our neighbor's mind because that would be black magic. Intellectual discussion is luciferic and demonic. Very hard to achieve, but it can be done. When which we may, we may be surrounded by people who disagree with us, who say, this Gnostic studies or your beliefs and studies in esotericism, that's garbage. And instead of wanting to retaliate and to justify ourselves with that sense of hurt, self-esteem, or pride, it doesn't bother us. We learn to receive that impression, that criticism, and not identify with it. But of course, this is very obvious, that debates totally destroy organizations, groups, etc. And we should learn to avoid those type of conflicts And so, people base their entire understanding of philosophy, we can say, in relation to three minds. So we've talked a lot about the concept of the intellect as the mind. The ability to think, rationalize, reason, as a form of mind, as a functionalism of the intellect. In Gnostic psychology, we talk about three minds, three different types or ways of thinking, we could say, ways of being, which can help us to understand the nature of philosophy, the nature of different philosophical schools in this physical world, but also the nature of genuine philosophy in the internal worlds, this genuine love of wisdom born from experience. So we included three images. We have Jesus before Pilate on the left, with the text stating the inner mind. We have a group of rabbis in a synagogue in relation to the intermediate and mystical mind. And on the right we have a bacchanalia, an orgy, in relation to the sensual mind. So let's talk about the sensual mind first. What does it mean to have a sensual mind? A sensual mind is a way of conceptualizing oneself, identifying oneself, solely based on evidence from the five senses. 
we believe that we are a certain way, that the world is a certain way, based on our experience of our, from sight, taste, hearing, touch, smell. There are many doctrines that are focused on merely the five senses, as if the material is all that exists, is the limit of all that there is possibly to, possible to perceive. But of course, you know, Immanuel Kant stated that phenomena are just the appearances of things, but there is something deeper, something spiritual, as we know. But the sensual mind is a mind that is basing its theories and concepts on empirical evidence, empirical things. And likewise, many philosophies such as Epicureanism, which is propounded by the Scottish philosopher David Hume. You have hedonism, the belief that one should gratify their senses as much as possible before dying, and that pleasure is the highest good, according to Epicurus. Again, Epicureanism. Which, is a, which we represented by this bacchanalia. People who indulge in orgies and, and lust and desire, satisfying the pleasures of their senses, thinking that it, nothing matters, and that there is no consequence to their actions, because when one dies physically, one will cease to exist. These people ignore the fundamental law of karma, cause and effect. And while a person gratifies their physical senses, the soul or consciousness embedded in ego still perpetuates throughout time, doesn't cease to exist. But people who are sensually indoctrinated think that because we only see with the five senses, they don't have their spiritual senses developed. They think that when they physically die, they will just go to the grave and nothing will happen, that they will cease to exist. This is nihilism, of course. Very sad way to think because the senses are not the limit of all that there is to perceive. In fact, consciousness and perception can expand to an infinite degree, as the 14th Dalai Lama stated. But people who are fully indoctrinated by the intellect, you could say the sensual mind, they only reason or base themselves on evidence from their senses, physically. They reject, therefore, anything related to metaphysics or spirituality. And of course, you do have another degree of mind that is inferior. While one type of mind of the senses is fascinated with impressions of, the, of empirical nature, you have the intermediate or mystical mind, which is all the religions of the world today. All the beliefs about God, all the concepts and theologies that the universe is a certain way because the scriptures state, because one thinks it is true, therefore it must be true, and that if one believes in it, it must, it must be true. And that having this conviction is based on, again, a type of thinking which is not predicated on experience. It's not based on facts. So all the schools of Islam, Judaism, Buddhism, Christianity, which are founded on scriptures and are limited to those scriptures and ways of thinking, the Catholic Church, etc. These people live within a mystical mind. They have mystical concepts, metaphysics, beliefs, ideas, ways of thinking that they may have in their mind, and yet they don't have the real experience of it. But of course, there's a mind that's superior, called the inner mind, which is the mind of a being like Jesus, of Buddha, of Krishna, of Moses. And so, 
an inner mind is the mind of a, is a type of perception relating to awakened consciousness. So when we awaken our consciousness, as like the allegory of the cave, we are awakening our own intelligence. Like a fire, we learn to see in the dark, to make our way through the nature of our mind, and to experience the truth. Jesus fully awakened his consciousness. And by awakening the consciousness, we have to eliminate the ego. So when the ego dies little by little, the consciousness that was trapped within it awakens, becomes expansive, more profound. The inner mind awakens in accordance with the death of the ego. So the more consciousness we liberate, the more our inner faculties will awaken. And like that experience I narrated to you, I was seeing Jesus in the astral plane. So I was awakening my inner mind, and I could see for myself Jesus of Nazareth, Master Abramento, and I talked with him. That's because I had my inner mind awakened to a degree. I'm not saying that I was fully awakened in that state. It was very clear, but of course, I, in order for me to be fully awakened, we, I have to eliminate my defects and to awaken the inner mind completely. But an inner mind that is fully expansive, without any type of conditioning, is a being like Moses who could really talk completely with God. And so we have Jesus here presented before Pilate in his crucifixion or in his passion after he was delivered the, I believe, 5,000 lashes of the whip. Pilate is a symbol of the intellect. You could say the sensual and intermediate mind. A mind that is only believing in what the senses teach or instruct or what the scriptures state, but one has not verified what those scriptures teach. So Pilate asked Jesus, what is the truth? Jesus kept silent. Because how can he teach the intellect, the mind, what the truth is? That's the beauty of this teaching. Pilate was confused. Of course, people think this is just a historical account of Jesus talking, of Jesus talking to his persecutors. But Pilate represents our mind. Sensual mind, intermediate mind. That says, what is the truth? How do I know what is real? And at Jesus, the inner Christic principle, remains silent. Because silence is the eloquence of wisdom. Instead of really receiving that knowledge intellectually through a book or a lecture or concepts, we experience it in the silence of meditation. And I remember that experience when I, which I was with Jesus. I said I talked with him, but it wasn't with verbs. I was speaking to him telepathically with my heart, asking him things, because he could read my mind completely. And, instruct, and he instructed me based on what I was asking him in my heart. And so he was teaching me in silence. He didn't say anything verbally, but he was showing me through symbols in the astral plane what I needed to do. And so Jesus remained silent. And likewise, when Buddha was asked, what is the truth? He turned and walked away. Same teaching. And so the inner mind is the genuine Gnostic philosophy of the great initiates based on what we perceive, what we verify. The intermediate mind is the mind based on beliefs, on metaphysics, theologies, which are not grounded in conscious experiential knowledge. And likewise, the sensual mind is a mind that is based on materialism. And so there's always been a conflict between these three minds in humanity. Likewise, people who are very materialistic reject and attack those who are very metaphysical. 
people who have metaphysical concepts. And likewise, people with certain religious beliefs condemn those who are nihilists or anarchists or whatever term we want to give to people or anyone who follows these other forms of mind. In the central mind, of course, we have materialistic, uh, Marxism, materialism, etc. But the inner mind is tranquil. It doesn't argue. And of course, when he was asked, Jesus was asked what, the, what is the truth, he kept silent. He didn't argue. Because he knew that he couldn't convey that truth to that, his mind. Only the soul can know the truth. So Samaelan Vior states and synthesizes this teaching I've been explaining in a very profound and simple way in his Revolution of the Dialectic, in which he talks about these different forms of thought, these different forms of, or schools, we could say. Matter is nothing but condensed energy. The infinite modifications of energy are absolutely unknown, as much for the historic materialism as for the dialectic materialism. Energy is equal to mass by the velocity of the light to the square. We, the Gnostics, separate ourselves from the antithetical struggle that exists between metaphysics and dialectical materialism. These are the two antitheses of ignorance, the two antitheses of error. We go in a distinct way. We are Gnostics. We consider life as an integral whole. The object is a point in space that serves as a vehicle to a determined sum of values. Inspired knowledge, or spiritual knowledge, allows us to study the intimate existing relationships among the all forms and values of this great nature. Dialectic materialism does not know the values, meaning the consciousness, or even the different values of the ego that we carry within. They ignore that they have ego, or they really don't see the nature of their mind. Dialectic materialism does not know the values. It only studies the object. Metaphysics neither knows the values nor the object. We, the Gnostics, separate ourselves from the two antitheses of error, of ignorance, and we integrally study the human being and the great nature. So, religious people and atheists arguing against each other. Very typical conversation that's occurring today. And yet, people don't have real understanding from experience. They haven't awakened their inner mind. And so we need to learn to awaken our inner mind, which we do through meditation. Because if our mind is fully immersed in the senses, we fail to see we fail to see life in its true form. So I mentioned to you about awakening the inner mind, like Moses before the Lord on Mount Sinai. We've included in this final graphic an image of Arjuna from the Bhagavad Gita, the Song of the Lord from the Mahabharata, the great warrior, talking to Krishna, who is Christ, the Lord, the avatar of Vishnu, which is again the, Lord, the cosmic Christ, the Christic principle, that primordial root energy at the heart of every existing thing, the noumena, the Kant. Of course, he didn't use that term Christ, but he referred to, to the truth and the things in themselves as being noumena, but we know in esotericism, the real Neuma spirit is the Lord, the divine, within every atom, every existing cosmic unit. Hello, welcome. I'm sorry. That's okay. Sure. For the mind which follows in the wake of the wandering senses, 
carries away his discrimination as the wind carries away a boat on the waters. And so as we talked about the nature of the mind as being preoccupied and distracted with thoughts, memories, ideas, concepts, etc. This type of mind or that's attached to the senses or one that is caught in beliefs and ideas, theories, etc. is carried away by like a boat on the waters according to the Bhagavad Gita. And so as we emphasize Previously, Krishna, the Lord, is speaking to Arjuna, much like Moses was talking to the Lord on Mount Sinai. And we too, by awakening our consciousness, our inner mind, our spiritual potential, can speak face-to-face with that divinity, as represented in many religious cosmogonies, many religious scriptures. So we must learn to not identify with the intellect, but to learn how to use it for spiritual purposes. It is a tool, a machine, a means by which we can study ourselves, but also learn to interact and relate to the world. So as we were explaining in this lecture, the intellect in itself is not useless. We need it. But we neither need to be identified with it or carried away by it. Because people think in many spiritual circles that to be spiritual means to not be identified with it, well, to not really uh, focus so much on the intellect, to be simple, But that's another extreme that we seek to avoid in this type of studies. We talked about how philosophies in different schools, based on the intellect, may be interesting, may be compelling, but they're not grounded on the experience of the truth, on direct facts, what we verify with our consciousness. But this is not to say that the intellect must be disregarded. Like, as we said, Jesus riding into Jerusalem was riding on the donkey of the mind, a symbol of our intellect, in order to enter the heavenly city or on Palm Sunday. A symbol of entering into those spiritual states of consciousness that we can, we can access when we learn to control this intellect. It wasn't like Jesus just threw away the animal, disregarded it. Instead, he used it for God. And again, Christ as a principle is within, within each of us. And our inner Christ needs to learn to conquer this intellect that we have and use it for the well-being of humanity. So the mind, again, as we stated, that follows in the wake of the wandering senses, carries away his discrimination as the wind carries away a boat on the waters. So our inner divinity must control this intellect that we have. But of course, we learn to do that by cooperating with that inner presence or principle through practices like meditation. And so to conclude this lecture, we'll talk about uh, a quote given by Samuel and Vior, in his book, uh, Igneous Rose, excuse me, in which sums up really the essence of this this, uh, course we've been giving. So we've talked about how philosophy is based on, again, the senses and perhaps beliefs about who we are, but are not grounded on facts, on experience, on the truth. And so we have to learn to access that truth within us by learning to direct our attention by awakening our potential, our consciousness. Our innermost, the the divine, is yes, yes, yes. The wisdom of our innermost is yes, yes, yes. The love of our innermost is yes, yes, yes. So we talked about philosophia. Philos meaning love of Sophia, wisdom of God, of the truth. 
that wisdom and love of when we feel in the presence of the divine is born in us when we awaken that within us. And of course, the divine is always ready to aid us at any moment when we learn to pay attention here and now. So it's always an affirmation of, yes, I will help you. I will aid you. I will not reject you. Like Rumi says in his poems, ours is not a caravan of despair. Even if you've broken your vow a thousand times, come, join us, come. So the wisdom of our innermost is like that, our inner divine being. And we have to understand that when we say, I am hungry, I am thirsty, etc., we are affirming something absurd because the innermost is not hungry nor thirsty. The one who is hungry and thirsty is the physical body. It is much better to say, my body is hungry, my body is thirsty. The same happens with the mind when we say, I have a mental force, I have a strong mental force, I have a problem, I have such a conflict, I have such suffering, such thoughts are occurring to me, etc. We are then affirming very grave errors because these, are, things are not, these things are from the mind, not from the innermost. The innermost, the divine, has no problems. Problems are from the mind. Our disciples must pro- change the process of reasoning for the beauty of comprehension. To reason is a, great, is a crime of great magnitude against the innermost. Now this doesn't mean that the intellect as I said, is not useful when it's guided by the Spirit. Because, he, as Samuel Anvera stated, to reason is a great crime against God. It doesn't mean that the mind can't be used in its genuine, original, and intended sense. Our intellect in these times tends to dominate us. We are filled with thoughts, worries, anxieties, preoccupations, desires, Impulses that really charge our life with a lot of negativity. So that type of reasoning is really negative. To be consumed by that type of conditioned mind, a sensual mind, which is only preoccupied with material things and not with the treasuries of God within us. And so to reason in that sense is is a crime because the intellect which says that I think therefore I am, like Descartes stated in his philosophy, is wrong. Instead, the one who says, I am here, I am present, I am the being, is God. Because that presence is within us. That truth is within us. The innermost does not think, as we stated previously. God does not need to rationalize, to come up with a solution with the intellect for a problem. And of course, God is not a person, but an intelligence or force within us, which we have to actualize, to develop. Because it's in a potential state within us here and now, and not uh, fully active. So we must learn to change the process of reasoning for the beauty of comprehension. And this is the essence of genuine philosophy. Because real philosophy is not, as I said, about academics. Throwing vocabulary terms around to sound clever or interesting, to make someone look stupid on the opposing uh, debates uh, team. Instead, it refers to how we change the way we think. Not to be so identified with thinking and rationalizing and worrying, but instead to be present, to be mindful, to be awake as a spiritual being. So we must change the process of reasoning for the beauty of comprehension. Comprehension is not reasoning. And the distinction between Gnostic philosophy and regular philosophy is predicated on this point. Comprehension is 
when we know the truth for ourselves, when we understand the real solution to an intimate problem, not from having thought about it, but by not thinking about it. This is very common in many business circles in which a group of, or committee gets together to discuss the solution to a problem. And yet, with all the thinking and rationalizing they do, they can't, they can't find a solution. Instead, they walk away, they take a break, and then in those moments of not thinking about the problem, the insight comes. The realization of what needs to be done comes to the mind. Comprehension is like when we put our hand on a hot stove and we burn our hand. We retract it in pain and we realize from the experience that we, if we put our hand there, we will get burned. The same thing happens in psychology. When we look at a habit in our psyche and we see that a certain tendency we have is harmful, we may comprehend by getting burned in that situation that to not act on that habit or to change it. But people who are great uh, rationalists don't comprehend the truth behind their, uh, the problems that they face. You can simply look at uh, cases of like alcoholics. A person who is alcoholic may understand intellectually, they may reason, I know that my habit's bad, and yet they continue to indulge in that behavior. So comprehension is realizing that this is harmful and then I need to stop, because if I don't, I will die. We have the same, uh, there's the same uh, distinction in spiritual studies. When we see that certain habits like anger, fear, pride, lust, vanity, defects, etc., cause us to suffer and make others suffer, we comprehend and we learn not to behave in those, in those ways anymore. That's real, genuine spiritual philosophy. We have a love of wisdom and we realize more and more how we create our daily suffering. We create our daily problems. And if we identify with the mind, we will perpetuate our suffering more and more. Do you have any questions? So the intellect is basically the five senses, and then you mentioned intelligence that's different, that's more holistic. We have five, we could say we have six senses in synthesis. We have sight, hearing, taste, touch, and smell, plus, plus the ability to uh, imagine, which there's also the sense of intuition too. Intuition is, uh, intuition is knowing without having to reason. So this is exactly the quality of awakening consciousness in which you don't have to solve a problem. You don't, you don't need to solve a problem with the intellect. Instead, you know what you have to do. That's intuition. And that would be more intelligence as, a, as opposed to intellect. Yes, it is intelligence. And it, intellect is a quality of, we say, ego, our defects. Yeah. Meaning, um, you know, in a given moment, our sense of self, our ego, our pride may have a certain concept, in the, con- project a certain concept to deliberate, you know, well, I should, you know, I sh- perhaps I'll give a more concrete example. And um, perhaps we have a conflict at work in which someone says something derogatory towards us and provokes our self-esteem, our pride, which feels hurt. Mm-hmm. And then there's the concepts in those moments, well, I should say this to this person, the thoughts, I should say this in order to get retaliation, retribution for what he or she said to me. So that's a form of mind that's very degenerate, wrong, negative. But comprehension is when we know that that type of thinking is wrong. And then we change, we, we, we don't react to life so mechanically. We learn to respond, which is intelligence, intuition, and the capacity to perceive consciously. And again, consciousness has degrees. There's conditioned consciousness, which is 
anger, fear, pride, laziness, gluttony, defects. These are conditions of our psyche that make us feel weighted down and make us suffer and, other, and make other people suffer too. But unconditioned consciousness is when we free our psyche from those elements and we learn to develop peace, serenity, a mind that's perfectly pristine and clear that can directly reflect like a lake on a mountain the heavens of Urania. And we talked about the famous allegory of the cave of Plato, how the man escapes, a man escape, or a woman escapes the cave after imprisonment and sees the stars for the first time on the mountainside. After having escaped that narrow path of the cave and entered into the open landscape, which is a symbol of spiritual liberation. And so seeing the stars for the first time is seeing the, our inner divinity within us and recognizing that presence directly. And of course, our mind is like a lake. If we throw stones in it, if we thrash ourselves in those waters through anger or fear, etc., we disturb the equilibrium of, those, of that pond. And when the waters are churning through reason, through in, uh, intellect, through concepts, desires, we can't see the reflection that could be re- uh, naturally present there. And so when we um, learn to still our mind by comprehending those defects and not letting the impressions of life enter us mechanically where we just react to consistent, constantly to the different stimulus of life, instead we learn to receive it with a receptive mind and we don't identify with anger in these elements. The mind gradually stills, calms. And of course that happens by learning to behave appropriately, mm-hmm. learning to respond to life with a sense of dignity and, and rectitude of ethics and every religion has this concept that if you want to know God, you have to follow certain rules. And these are not just like a, co- a list or memoranda or codes of conduct that one thinks about and really admires but doesn't really do. Instead, it refers to not killing, not stealing, not doing drugs, not fornicating, not committing adultery. And people think that these are just physical laws to help communities stay together on a physical level. It's true. But the real meaning is that when we learn to curtail psychological habits, we look at our mind, we see that we have violence, we have fear, we have anger, we have elements that commit adultery and fornicate in the mind, even if physically we, we may not do so. As Jesus said, you've heard it said of old, you should not commit adultery. But even if you look at a person of the opposite sex out of lust, you've committed adultery in your heart with that person. So the mind, uh, first stop those habits, the mind begins to settle. And then psychologically, we begin to enter deeper states of uh, serenity. To learn more about the knowledge covered in this lecture, we invite you to study the books available through Glorian Publishing or GnosticTeachings.org. You can also view free online courses, lectures, transcriptions, and articles available at chicagognosis.org. All of this is made possible by the support of listeners like you. Have you benefited from this knowledge? Help others by making a tax-deductible donation at chicagognosis.org. We thank you for listening. We hope that these lectures aid you in developing your complete and divine potential. May all beings be happy. May all beings be joyful. 
May all beings be in peace.